listeners, I'm Ellie Kent, editor of New Mandala, and today we bring you the penultimate episode in the second series of Dr. Nicole Curato's podcast, Breaking Down Clichés About the Philippines. Today's target is the notion that participatory governance is a hoax. Nicole, where does this cynicism come from? Is this an idea that is unique to the Philippines, do you think? Okay, so this topic is really close to my heart because the topic of my research for the past few years is to understand how ordinary people can take part in democratic decision-making about issues that affect their lives. And participatory governance has been a concept to encapsulate this mechanism. And there have been a lot of criticisms against participatory governance. Um, In the Philippines, it has been accused of being a joke. Some see it as a tool for patronage or uh, a smokescreen for more control instead of serving as tool for democratization. So I talked to Dr. Teresa Melgar from the University of the Philippines de Lemans Department of Sociology, and Teresa's dissertation in Wisconsin compared Naga City in the Philippines and Porto Alegre in Brazil to understand the nuts and bolts of participatory governance on the local level. And spoiler, spoiler alert, Teresa tells us that participatory governance is not a hoax, but it's an aspiration. So. Like in our previous episodes, we recorded this chat in the sidelines of the Philippine Sociological Society's annual conference at the beautiful campus of Central Mindanao University. So hi, Therese. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Nicole. Nice to see you again. Yeah, so I think maybe we could set the context in the broader broader global context. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling, especially with the work that I do, I have a feeling that participatory processes have been in fashion in Mm -hmm. Mm post-authoritarian settings. Mm -hmm. Is this impression, first of all, correct? I would say so. Um, The the need, the uh, the claim or the wanting uh, of participatory governance became really more pronounced in the post-authoritarian era. Largely, and perhaps this would be your also uh, follow-up question, largely because it turned out after these authoritarian regimes were uh, brought down, that the the institutions that came to light uh, were wanting in other ways. No? So, uh, representative democracies, uh, representative institutions, turned out to be increasingly populated also by older traditional elites, mm. and so citizens who were mobilized, who uh, had high hopes about the transitions to democracy found themselves found themselves largely frustrated again by the lack of voice by the lack of representation in these institutions so i would say so that the timing is a very important uh, variable an important matter here uh, in understanding the rise of demands for participatory governance but simply put what is participatory governance what makes it participatory and quite distinct from representative institutions I think participatory governance uh, places a lot of emphasis on direct participation, on citizens, particularly those who happen to be affected by specific problems or issues being discussed, have a direct role, uh, substantive voice in assessing those issues and in coming up with potential solutions to them as well. Um, That's quite different from representative democracy because in representative democracy we tend to rely on our representatives to articulate our grievances and our interests and potential uh, aspirations or solutions as well. Um, In participatory governance there is an aspiration to share 
in the decision-making process by those who have traditionally been excluded from these processes. So it's a claim, again, also to recognition that um, we are not just spectators, we are not just the ones affected, but precisely because we are also the ones affected, then we need to have some substantive voice in these kinds of decision-making processes. That's how participatory governance, I would say, would be different from representative democracy or representative governance. Nonetheless, it does not mean that it wants to do away with all sorts of representation. Mm. Um, advocates of participatory governance typically seek these, uh, these new institutional arrangements that's more participatory as a complement, no? as a way to strengthen, I would say, also our institutions as a way to strengthen and to expand more venues for the articulation of these kinds of grievances and interests. Mm -hmm. So it's complementary. Nonetheless, it has a, uh, a particular distinction that uh, in a way also supports or improves on uh, representative democracies. And do I have the right interpretation that the complementarity of representative and participatory institutions is very much enshrined in the 1986 Constitution of the Philippines, mm -hmm. um, because it really it, it has it places big emphasis on people's participation and voices of ordinary mm -hmm. yes. citizens. Um, can you walk us through that kind of ideal of participatory governance in the Philippines, and obviously how that ideal is realized or not realized mm -hmm. in practice? Um, well, I would agree with you that uh, when the 1986 Constitution uh, was ratified, uh, that Constitution, in fact, has been called as one of the most progressive in the world. Uh, there is a lot of support, a recognition uh, for human rights. At the same time, people's participation is also incorporated in a lot of the provisions. In fact, um, that's recognized in, the, in some of the articles that people have a right to participate in governance. But of course, constitutions are largely statements of aspiration in that sense. No? They embody goals and aspirations, but what is needed is uh, a way to put these aspirations into practice. And so um, in the early 90s, no, a, a move to implement some of the provisions came to light, such as the decentralization uh, provision was embodied in the local government code. Of course, that local government code roots itself into some of these constitutional provisions. But the local government code became more specific than the constitution, and which is a good thing. No? because it really insisted that citizens should be given uh, spaces. No? Uh, there are even provisions concerning certain marginalized sectors in, in certain localities to be given actual representation in local governments. So the local government code in that case um, um, made more specific some of the aspirations in the uh, 1986 Philippine Constitution. And it was precisely because of the spaces that were opened up by the code. We need to say it's a legal provision. Uh, governments have to um, abide by them. No? Uh, it was precisely this recognition of the power of the local government code that citizens' movements who were mobilized in that transition to democracy saw that as a really promising arena in which to further articulate, further realize some of their advocacy, especially with respect to better governance at the local level. So there's a certain continuity, but at the same time, it would not have uh, happened, I would say it would not have become more real if citizens did not realize those pro very promising spaces that mm -hmm. were opened up by these institutional changes over time. 
can you give an example or a favorite example in your study of uh, citizens maximizing that new space in a post-authoritarian context? Well, okay. Um, one of the cases I studied was Naga. Now, Naga is, is rather well-known in the uh, Philippine context as, uh, you might say, a hub, a site of really improved, better governance. Uh, much of the reforms there was uh, attributed, of course, to the rise of reformers at the local level, no? the late Jesse Robredo. No? But at the same time, uh, what needs to also be emphasized in this story is that uh, a number of those participatory spaces came to light also because of the insistence of citizens' movements in Naga, many of whom were mobilized in the anti-dictatorship struggle, to indeed um, insist that those spaces... Uh, be fully utilized in the let's say in the uh, in the search for better solutions to their housing problem. No? Naga is uh, Naga has a huge population of informal settlers who remain uh, who have been occupying largely uh, private or public land, and so informal settlers uh, the lack of housing is a huge problem, and so one of the things that they did there was to insist that they have some participation in some local councils that are searching, these are local government councils, by the way, that are searching for more promising solutions mm. to the housing problem. So I would say that's one. The other one would be, um, uh, there, was this, uh, there was this coalition that came uh, about uh, in the post-86 uh, era. It's called the, the uh, People's Council. Um, this uh, Nagasi People's Council, NCPC, that's the full name, this actually has its roots to some of the discussions in the pre-1986 era, and they were already thinking of what are the ways by which you can really realize citizens' empowerment um, in a democratic setting. Mm. And when that democratic setting came about, they saw that, again, as an opportunity precisely to embody, to deeply embody the notion of having a citizen's voice in these uh, governmental spaces, so that decision-making is no longer just monopolized by government, progressive or enlightened as it may be, but government has a lot to learn also from citizens, particularly those who are affected by certain problems because they are likely themselves also searching for solutions. Mm -hmm. And states do not have a, a monopoly in this case. When I, mean when I say states, I mean specifically the reformers in government they do not necessarily have a monopoly of visions or a monopoly of abilities to look for uh, promising solutions. Rather, most of the time, people uh, found in these difficult situations would have also some ideas by which those problems can be solved. And is Naga the exception or the rule? Because I can already imagine a lot of critics uh, saying that, uh, yeah, participatory processes are just a hoax, it's a talk shop, um, it can easily be corrupted. So, for example, NGO representatives working with, let's say, local mayors are, I don't know, brothers-in-law or sisters-in-law. Yes. There's a nepotistic element to it. So there are many ways in which it can be corrupted. So do you think it's a defensible project in the context of the Philippines? Well, most uh, democratic or democratization projects are faced with a lot of challenges. And NAGA uh, happens to just have had in place certain contributory elements. And for that matter, um, uh, a way of thinking about the success of Naga is to focus on some of these elements. No? You had reformers in power, you had a vibrant civil society that was also thinking of 
the maximization of democratic spaces. Uh, you also had a decentralization process happening at the time that they were thinking about these uh, alternative institutional arrangements. So it's a combination of factors that really went well for Naga. Now, um, can these things be rolled back? Can they be uh, corrupted uh, in that sense? I would say certainly those are some of the possibilities because we will also need to remember that even if we are able to make advances in participatory governance, they are not necessarily starting from scratch. Mm. Settings, uh, democratic as they may be, may have certain legacies from the past. So certain clientelistic practices whereby people look for partic particularistic benefits rather than more broadly oriented public policies. I mean, these are traditions that may have been inherited from previous uh, governments. And so those kinds of tendencies could certainly still exist. Mm. I would say the challenge is to show how new institutional arrangements work much better because they can deliver in the sense that um, the kinds of services, the kinds of, uh, let's say, uh, better governance that is aspired for can be more uh, achieved and can be achieved better rather in these new institutional arrangements. So that's one, they can deliver. At the same time, um, um, and so that's one way by which to counter other tendencies, I would say, uh, with respect to the corruption or with respect to the rolling back of these uh, settings. No? Uh, and then at the same time, um, there's also a question of uh, how to protect these kinds of gains, no? yeah, uh, how exactly. to make them more sustainable. Um, that is a real challenge. We've seen a number of cases where some of the reforms were rolled back once a new government comes to power, mm. a new government that is not as reform-oriented, or let's say civil society groups become weakened over time. So that's also, again, another possibility. Um, so for that matter, um, part of the debate, or part of probably the challenge, would be to con get precisely these, uh, these experiments to work. Because once, I would say, I would dare say, though, that when people begin to see that they are actually working, um, they would rather have these kinds of arrangements than resort to the old particularistic ties with yeah. the states. It's making them work that matters, but at the same time, it's also um, having them develop a stake in their continued uh, vibrancy. What mm -hmm. I mean, if they see that these institutional arrangements are working, at the that means it becomes meaningful for them. And when something is meaningful for you, you would likely have a tendency to fight for it. To seek its continuity, and in a way that may be one of the—it's not a guarantee, but it's one of the conditions that may help sustain these kinds of institutional reforms when they become meaningful because they're working, because they are able to, in a way, give you a sense of inclusion. Because from that typical excluded position, you are now able to participate in a substantive way, then that is really also likely to give meaningful to, uh, meaning to citizens. For that matter, um, most likely they're going to continue fighting for these kinds of reforms and uh, help sustain them. This kind of um, thinks of the citizen as someone who is active, who mm -hmm. is capable of devoting time, resources, and energy to politics. Mm -hmm. um, of course, another school of thought would be, why do you need that? Don't we just need to vote for the right people who can mm -hmm. adequately represent us? 
So especially in the context of the Philippines where people have to make have to work three jobs just to make ends meet. And then for participatory governance to work, they should devote what evenings, weekends to a series of endless meetings, mm-hmm. right? So why why is this feasible? Uh, well, I would say perhaps I would again go to my earlier point that they did not be seen as contradictory to each other. On the one hand, certainly there's still a need to strive for better representative institutions. Um, if we continue to believe in them, and I think many Filipinos do, the challenge is to create spaces so that uh, other candidates you know, from different parties, from lesser known parties, from marginalized parties, we have a better chance to contest uh, or uh, gain power in these representative institutions. And so that's one set of reforms that also needs to be uh, implemented, I would say. No? Um, nonetheless, at the same time, these kinds of representative institutions, even if we have progressive people there uh, in power, uh, articulating our, our needs and our views, no? they may still have certain limitations. And so the, the need for participatory governance, especially at levels where they are most viable, and experiments and the literature would suggest that they can be more viable at the local level, mm. um, that could complement. No? So uh, as you said, well, in a way, certainly that would be a challenge. No? Can you do all sorts of things? No? But that's why we say if certain institutional reforms can be already embedded in representative institutions. So as I said, if there could be more spaces for more democratic voices to emerge, alternative candidates to emerge, then certainly we have addressed one side of the problem. But at the same time, the other side is, do citizens need to just step back? Mm. Um, can they not continue acting on some of their uh, demands and some of their grievances? Certainly, that's the other side of the challenge that they will be faced with. Yeah. Both uh, are important. I yeah. think part of the reason why we Filipinos and probably many other parts of the world too, have tended to take a back seat is that um, these representative institutions largely became playgrounds of the elite. Mm. And we did not see it or those institutions are having any role further. And so I would still say that those representative institutions still have a role and we still need to reform them. Nonetheless, we cannot revert back to a certain spectatorship mode. We still need to be actively involved in some of the more promising uh, institutional spaces open for us. So they go together. But how do you feel about critiques that describe participatory processes as not radical enough? So especially I'm thinking about cases where it's very much institutionalized, like Kalahi Sibs as a project. And I think one of the success stories in Kalahi Sibs, for example, is you've got women who were trained in community-driven development programs, like communities deciding that they want to build a well or they want to build a school. So these are concrete outcomes that are in the form of social services. And then some of these women who took part end up running for office, mm-hmm. challenging local elites. So that's a success story. But others would say, but that's not radical enough. That's not how you build a movement. That's not how you dismantle feudalistic economic arrangements in the Philippines. Well, I, I would say that's one view, certainly, in a range of uh, views out there that is a, a view worth considering. I would also say that uh, the process of social change can be seen as either a big bang approach whereby everything happens all at once or it can also be seen as 
something that is um, processual. A certain piece of change can be the foundation for larger changes. No? And I think certain kinds of uh, reforms, I, I would not necessarily name the Kalahi Seeds as one of those, no? Uh, but I would say, let's, a case I'm more familiar with would be the participatory budgeting in Brazil, you know? Um, when uh, the PB started, that's PB for short, um, citizens demands that the communities were largely about uh, community roads, um, paving, uh, sewage, or, or better sewage systems. And you might say, these are all very small, minute things, but at the same time, we need to think about people demanding them as some of the most excluded. And while they may seem like very tiny, minute things, they, are, they matter so much to people who are excluded. Nonetheless, after some time, after some repeated cycles of getting improvements along this, uh, uh, with these types of projects, people also started thinking of broader concerns. So they started thinking of housing as a policy arena that they can intervene in with respect to the city. They started thinking about culture. Uh, can you imagine culture? I mean, uh, urban poor citizens, poor uh, citizens in the city are talking about how cultural activities citywide in that, in that case can be enriching, can mm. provide a sense of inclusion. So what am I saying here? Um, it is a model whereby broader changes are founded on smaller ones whereby people first develop a sense of their capabilities, a sense that uh, these kinds of changes matter to them and a sense that they can in fact aspire for broader changes. The radicalism is in the process of seeing this as integrated and as I would say processual and something that can be accomplished over time provided that you see their interconnections. I like, I like that analysis. There's power in small achievements on a mm -hmm. micro scale, mm -hmm. which builds confidence mm -hmm. and builds political capacities mm -hmm. to aspire for something bigger. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to be a very quick shift mm -hmm. to, to radical change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one peculiarity of participatory processes in developing countries is that some of them are funded by loans mm -hmm. from institutions like mm -hmm. the World Bank. I'm not mistaken. Some of the biggest loan projects of the World Bank are for community-driven development mm -hmm. programs. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's your take on this? Well, um, all right, World Bank projects have often been criticized for um, articulating or being founded on a specific model of the world, so to speak, no? They're supposed to be, um, or at least the critique is that they are l likely aimed to be making people capable of flourishing, surviving in a market economy. So the capabilities are meant to make them more entrepreneurial in that sense. Um, I would say people need indeed to be mindful of this, you might say, ideological underpinnings of certain loans. They do need to be. At the same time, they also need to be mindful of whether there are enough spaces by which their own ways of thinking about what they need to do and where they need to go from here can be incorporated in this project. Some projects, I would say, are much more closed. Um, they are very rigid, rigidly, I would say, conceptualized. There's no way by which you can imagine yourself retooling or re re reconfiguring a project. It's really about making you really rather entrepreneurial in that sense. 
but some projects are have a little bit more of space. In that sense, I think, um, I think we don't necessarily have to, and this is one of my favorite expressions: throw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, try and disaggregate. Try and see in any specific project or sets of projects whether. Um, in the long haul, this can contribute to some sense of empowerment based on an alternative way of doing things. Mm -hmm. If these projects really tend to be closed, then perhaps, indeed, we might have second thoughts about taking them on. But if these projects can really contribute to a sense of empowerment, and then you nudge them and you bring them into particular directions, into particular ways of doing things, certainly we'll need to consider that as well. Yeah. So I guess just to kind of wrap up the discussion, of course, participatory governance has very strong normative underpinnings. Uh, some cases have good empirical track record. Mm -hmm. On balance, um, is participatory governance in the Philippines a hoax? I would say it's it's uh, it's an aspiration. It's it's a seriously promising aspiration. There are many obstacles towards accomplishing it you have localities that are still enmeshed in traditional relations of power, particularistic, clientelistic, sometimes even having some of these old bosses, so to speak, no, old lords. no. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain localities that have made breakthroughs already in terms of opening up spaces for people's uh, ideas and visions of governance to come through. It's not a hoax, it's, an, it's a vision. Like most visions, uh, there are important challenges. But I think the 21st century has shown us that it could work, provided some of the conditions that contribute to uh, better governance, better participatory governance, can be cultivated there. So it's not a hoax, but it is a very uh, difficult to achieve vision. But Brazil, Naga, uh, there's a range of examples. No, uh, I believe it's also being tried out in France. It is also being tried out in Portugal. So there's a range of examples that suggest to us that incorporating citizens' voices and views into decision-making process can give, well, better outcomes, certainly, but it can also lead to a more empowered citizenry who are convinced that they do have a role to play in their societies and that, uh, that they can indeed make a difference in their societies and they can lead to better governance. That's great. So yeah, I learned a lot. It's not a hoax, it's a vision. I think we can end the discussion there. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Nicole.